This episode, I'm joined by Jacob Rollison, who is a Jacques Ellul scholar and the author of A New Reading of Jacques Ellul, Presence and Communication in the Postmodern World, and editor of Jacques Ellul, a companion to his major works, along with Jacob E. Van Fleet. In this first part on the philosophy of Jacques Ellul, we discuss Ellul's critique of technological society and Ellul's understanding of propaganda alongside a variety of other topics. This is part one of two on the philosophy of Jacques Ellul, with the second part being on Ellul's often overlooked spiritual and Christian writings. I'd like to say a big thank you to all my paid patrons and subscribers for making this work possible. And if you would like to support Hermetic's podcast, it is greatly appreciated, or become part of the community, please find links in the description below. Enjoy. So, Jake Rollison, thanks very much for joining us on Hermetic's podcast. Pleasure to be here. Thanks, James. Uh, we are going to be discussing the... This is actually a first for the for Hermetic's in that I had to split this episode into two. I sort of asked, could we actually, could we actually do two episodes? Because recently released, which is co-edited by uh, Jacob uh, E. Van Fleet and yourself, uh, Jacob uh, Rollison, uh, is... Jacques Ellul, a companion to his major works, published by Cascade, um, is it Cas- yeah, Cascade Books, um, in a Cascade com- companion series. And they were like, they were nice enough to send me some copies of this. And then I didn't actually realize that they, they were going to send me some copies of Jacques Ellul essential spiritual writings. And then upon research, I realized I'm going to really have to split this into two episodes because mm. these two strands of his thought, even though they, they are constantly overlapping and like he makes that clear that one can't really be without the other. They are uh, two things which like we wouldn't really have the time to go in depth in enough into either of them in the space of one uh, sort of, you know, hour or so. So this sure. one is focusing on the, the work which most people would know Jacques Ellul for, which is the technological critique, his work on propaganda uh, and his work on sort of societal critique as well. Um, so, but but before we sort of jump in on all that, uh, Jake, just sort of tell us a little bit about yourself and how this this little companion came about and how you sort of you know came to be so interested in a lot. Sure. Uh, so yeah, a bit about myself. I'm uh, I'm currently an independent scholar living and working in Strasbourg, France. Uh, much of my recent work these last several years has indeed centered around the writings and and legacy of Jacques Ellul. Um, my academic background is, is a bit interdisciplinary, but in a way, Alul is the thread that ties it all together. Uh, so for my bachelor's degree, uh, I'm, I'm an American, as you can tell by my accent, I'm sure. Um, I grew up in the U.S. and, and I went to uh, Wheaton College, a small evangelical Christian college outside of, uh, of Chicago. And uh, I studied economics there, but I was continually questioning what does it mean to study economics or, or philosophy or these other things that a Christian school. Uh, in other words, does theology change how, how one approaches economics, politics, society, philosophy, etc., or not? Um, and if so, how? And so it was during this questioning that I, I, uh, I providentially stumbled on a little. Um, so Wheaton happens to house uh, part of an enormous archive of Alul's writings, possibly the largest outside of France. Uh, which is a bit ironic because he certainly doesn't fit in the American evangelical mold. Um, but we'll come back to that later, I'm sure. Um, so anyway, after after um, studying economics at Wheaton, I went on to pursue a master's degree, 
which focused on the French thinkers that we often label uh, postmodern, including uh, Lyotard, Derrida, Deleuze, etc. And uh, all the while, it felt like Alul had something to say here, that, that he provided a, a robust response to postmodern questions on both sociological and theological levels. So uh, for my PhD in theology, I, I set out to really dig into what that response was and, and see if and how it's meaningful today. Um, so that was what got me to, to um, well, basically study a little for over a decade now. Um, and then having finished the PhD, uh, Jacob Van Vliet contacted me with, with uh, a manuscript for the present book that, you, that uh, you've read. And um, he asked me if I would read it over. And then he said, well, you know what? Actually, if you'd like, why don't, why don't you uh, feel free to add some to it and edit it and we can co-publish it. And um, he's a, a pleasure to work with. He's a very kind and, and generous scholar. So um, I was very happy to do that. Okay. That sounds like a, a sort of a, a nice process. I mean, I stopped. I, I also did my master's in, in uh, on, on those sorts of philosophers, which are stereotypically mm -hmm. labeled, labeled postmodern, even though no one will ever tell you what that exactly means. But right. I, you know, <laughs> I stopped stopped just before the PhD. So there we go. Mm -hmm. um, before we sort of jump into Alul's work um, specifically, yeah. um, I just have to ask you the Hermetics question, uh, which is you can place three thinkers, living or dead, into a room and listen in on the conversation. Who do you pick? And as we are talking about a specific thinker, um, we can include Jacques Alul and add three more. Sure. Um, so you'll notice that my ch most of my choices uh, are a bit overdetermined by my little studies. Um, so all my choices somehow live at this intersection between uh, between theology and everything else. So uh, yes, we'll start with a little. Certainly, he uh, he has been a dialogue partner for over ten years, and um, I've always said that I'll keep reading him until I stop learning from him, and I'm still going. So uh, a little number two, I would say Soren Kierkegaard. Um, He's in the background of Alul for sure, uh, but more broadly, he still looms very large in, in this Western intersection between theology and philosophy and, uh, and the way that these two fields intertwine with communication in his life and his works is, is fascinating. Um, for my third choice, I decided to go with Paul Virilio. Mm -hmm. um, so recently deceased, he was a French-Italian theorist of, of speed and of the accident, his two big themes. He often repeated the phrase, the invention of the ship was the invention of the shipwreck. And um, on the theology side, he's interesting because he was a, a practicing Roman Catholic. Um, he treated similar themes as a little, but more from the philosophical perspective. And um, every time I read his stuff, it feels like uh, every line is sometimes like a punch in the face. <laughs> so uh, he's, he's a really rhetorically powerful thinker. And then for the fourth, the final one, I, I'm not sure I... I suppose I'd rather pull someone in who's uh, who's doing something different from these others, since you know what they're doing kind of does follow a, a similar line of thought. Um, I thought perhaps somebody like Václav Havel, who uh, as a playwright and a politician, is putting these things more into into practice. Um, and as far as I can tell, he was he was respected for being humble and reflective, even when in office. Um, he had a sort. He modeled a kind of human and moral politics, and and put some of these these other ideas into practice. So um, yeah, I thought he might be a nice a nice fourth choice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So do you, do you mind if I ask? Are you are you Catholic? No, uh, so Protestant. Oh. Uh, yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Do you 
Do you think there's a reason then? I mean, this is a perhaps a bit of a heated question, but sure. Kierkegaard, Alul, uh, Virilio, these are all thinkers who are sort of, you know, I'm, I'm sure you might agree, not as... Um, not studied as vigorously as others. They don't really get as uh, much stage time as the other right. others, other thinkers. Do you think there's there is a connection to the Catholicism, you know, thing there, or the, or the religious sincerity mm-hmm. there that, that you know that isn't taken as seriously now, or do you think it might just be the fact of sort of fashion? Well, it's interesting because I think um, in these three choices, at least they they were very aware of the um well let's say that first of all yes their the, the christian faith did actively um play into their thought in a, in a very unique way um as we as we dig into alul and, and his relationship to kierkegaard we'll see this but um both alul and kierkegaard they um they purposely made some of their works non-theological and um ended up making serious contributions in, in things that had nothing to do with their faith um and they did so intentionally. So Elul, for example, would, used to warn his students when he would teach classes on the thought of Karl Marx, he would warn his students, now know that I'm a Christian, so it's possible that my uh, my biblical readings or whatever will factor in and, and kind of determine what I teach. So stay on guard against that. Um, so far from trying to cultivate a sort of disciple um, attitude, he was much more like, careful that I don't accidentally influence what I'm trying to teach you. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, very interesting in that way. And then Virilio as well, his um the, the Roman Catholic side is there for him. He's he's it's in the background, it's it's there and it pops through now and then. Um he's not shy about it, but it certainly isn't um you have to kind of look for it to really find it. And the nice thing about all three, I think, is that um a more fuller picture of them has to somehow deal with this theological side. So Kierkegaard notoriously in France especially was was um like basically uh the early Kierkegaard reception in France only focused on the philosophical Kierkegaard um and paid no attention to the the theological element which was very significant in his works um Elul too there's there's people who come to him from both sides without realizing the other side um and Virilio, I think, is only starting to really be taken seriously in, in theology, but but it's it's a small it's a slow and small start. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. Do 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 you think there's a reason why that that theological thing is often missed? I mean, perhaps it's just because that isn't always the people who go into philosophy don't often think that they're going to have to deal with theology in that sense. They're so separate that I guess. You know, mm. if you go, if yeah. you if you head towards a lull, thinking that you're going to be talking about um, technological critique, I guess it's surprising that you might you might have to uh, sort of say, oh, okay, that this is actually completely tied in with some theology. That that from from a distance, that seems uh, like it's not going to be the case. Yes, I, I think that's fair to say. Um, I think it's also um, like especially today. So um, you know, after the second half of the 20th century, it's it's um, it's much rarer to find an active, uh, like a faith that makes an active difference on an intellectual level in, in a lot of these things. Um, we, de- we generally tend to uh, set most of this in the category of religion, which makes it a kind of private matter or a side uh, discussion that doesn't actively include uh, all of public discourse. But the further you go back, the harder it is to do that. 
So um, even early 20th century, the, the extent to which you could assume a certain um, at least familiarity with theological themes, if not a certain theological intention in, in general public discourse in a lot of European um, countries or Western discourse in general is, is, is much more pronounced. So um, today I think it's helpful to have the categories, but yes, I think you're totally right that today we don't, we don't assume that we'll need them to, to understand sociology or, or the development of the West or, or technology, but they, uh, what's nice about them, if we allow them to interrogate these, these other categories, which seem so a-religious, um, is that they offer a, a genuinely different perspective hmm. that can oftentimes be, be um, critical in ways that um, non-religious discourse can't. Hmm. Okay. So where do, you, where do you think the, the conversation in that room might, might head towards? Hmm. That's, a good, <laughs> that's a good question. I mean, I picked it the three because, like I said, there's a, there's a certain relationship, affiliation between them but they're also quite different. So um, they all have an aesthetic side. Uh, Elul, his mother was a painter and he, he grew up with a certain aesthetic sensibility. Um, Kierkegaard, his writings in aesthetics uh, and, and um, well, I don't know, just the general irony and, and clownishness of his writings um, points to that for me. Virilio was, a, was trained as an artist, I think, and, and did stained glass. He had, he had done architecture for, for years before he started writing. And then Havel himself was a playwright before he was a, a politician. So to me, this that would interest me to see, to see what they would do with the aesthetic side of things. Um, and and knowing that they all are, are also keenly aware of um, of politics and, and what that means uh, theologically and, and, and just how all these things interacted, I, I think it would have to be a very interesting interdisciplinary conversation. Um, but it couldn't avoid questions of ethics either. It would have to touch on on human life, and that's what interests me more: is that when these uh, when these questions come to bear on how we live. So, yeah. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Well, I'm sure those some of those thinkers definitely, this, you know, the strand of Christianity or, or belief will come back in. Um, but it's interesting, you know, we were, we already mentioned the, um, you know, the two sides to a lot, and it does seem to me. Perhaps, perhaps I'm sort of projecting because just this was just my experience of a lot. But when I first heard about him, people speaking about him, it was just basically at first just the book technological, the technological society and his yeah. criticisms of technology, and then may occasionally a, a mention of the the work propaganda because I think mm -hmm. at, I think at the time people were on about Edward Bernays as well and things along these lines. So these were the two books I came across. So you know that that whole. Um, sort of theological and Christian side to him was just basically non-existent when I first came across him. So, yeah. you know, the question is why, why one might, why might one be deceived in thinking that they, they fully understand Alul when really they, they only have this, this first part of the picture, which is, you know, the, the part of the picture, which is the most pronounced, unfortunately, that's just the technological criticism side. Sure. So the short answer is uh, because the picture is big and complicated. <laughs> um, it is big because I think Alul is explicitly trying to offer a, a kind of synthetic overall view of society as it was throughout the 20th century. Um, but the trouble is he's trained in, uh, in history as well. He's an historian of, of law and historian of institutions. And so he's also trying to do justice to what is different um, today from yesterday or, or from another 
place. And I think this is not easy because he thinks that um, society in the last 100 or 150 years has become so much more complicated. Um, however, he's not just trying to write a, a kind of textbook um, of here's how things have changed. Um, we know that he also rejected uh, the kind of abstract ivory tower approach to, to thinking things through. Um, instead, he's hoping that his reader, that the person who comes to his works will hear what he is saying about where the society is heading and how it's evolving. Um, his studies, you could say, have a, a communicative purpose. So his goal is to stimulate his readers to respond ethically, to, to come and exercise their own freedom. And uh, here, especially, you can see Kierkegaard in the background. Um, as I mentioned, as you mentioned, um, some of Kierkegaard's works were kind of literary, poetic, and uh, others were explicitly steeped in, in Christian theology and aimed to um, edify the reader. So uh, Olo, likewise, he purposely divided his works into two streams. One was, uh, you could say, sociological or historical, um, and then another one is theological and ethical. So it's, it's easy to misinterpret him if you only read one stream. Um, in fact, uh, before we started recording, James and I briefly discussed uh, Ted Kaczynski, the, uh, he's not the, not the Unabomber, but the Oklahoma City bomber. Is that it? I think. Oh, no, no, he is the, he is the Unabomber. Or the Unabomber. Yeah. Yes, right. So, um, yeah, so he's one who uh, is perhaps the most infamous um, interpreter of a lull. Um, and I, I think he's a, a, a perfect case of, someone who only read one side and not very carefully either. Because um, if you read only only Alul's analyses, in a way, Ted Kaczynski's response is not impossible. Um, to think that he would he would read it and say, this is where everything is going. How, how can we have any freedom? And he is, uh, you know, that, that kind of questioning is, is part of Alul's intention. But for Ted Kaczynski to then say, um, so the answer is bonds and violence. Um, is a, a total failure because it doesn't take into account of those um, ethical writings. So yeah, um, for both thinkers, both Alul and Kierkegaard behind them, it's not just one part of their work that counts and it's not the whole thing, but it's actually the relationship between each part and the rest. So uh, since they both wrote a ton of books, before you can actually perceive those relations, you have to do a lot of reading, which is not easy. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, sort of, in short, then, it's it's not a scornful criticism. When when he is critiquing society, he's also sort of making it clear that one should have, the, have as you say, an, an ethical approach to this criticism and sort of try to figure out what you can do from that, as opposed to just, this thing is, this thing is bad, here is why it's bad. Yes, that's right. And it's also worth noting that... Um... So Alul tried to have a very um, realist approach to his, his analyses of society. And um, for him, sometimes that meant giving the, the diagnosis or the, you know, just stating how things were as, as clearly as possible, even if that means hopeless. Um, and sometimes it did. So, for example, uh, at the end of his life, um, he was doing an interview with, with um, Patrick Chastanet, who was one of his... Uh, uh, he was his teaching assistant, one of his longtime students. And Chestanet asked him something like, um, why should we read both sides of your work? Why should we read the whole thing and not just one side? And Alul basically said, well, 
if you only read my my sociological studies, uh, it would probably drive you to suicide. <laughs> um, the hope is is located in the theological side, um, but that doesn't mean that he he set out to say everything is hopeless. Um, he uh, he became convinced that way as he looked at things. But um, yeah, I think it's it's important to realize that even though there is a kind of rhetorical element. Um, there's also uh, a very science. It's it's a rhetorical element with a very scientific mind in the same uh, book. Okay. So yeah, I don't know if that's helpful or clear enough. <laughs> no, no, no. I think that's clear. I think that's clear. But I guess you know when we when we're talking about criticism of technology, Alil does sort of have some specific language, which I think yes. you know the the term technological brings up so many connotations and images i think for most people they would think of something like high tech or a computer or a piece of chipboard or something like that but um he uses the term technique in in relation to technological society so what does he what does he mean by this yes so that's a great question because it's so central to uh to everything that he's writing um especially on the sociological side and i think that the best one of the best ways to answer this is to situate this question within Lul's overall goal um, of understanding the evolution of society. So certainly another one of his influences, Karl Marx, is in the background here, and we'll come to uh, Lul and Marx a bit a bit further on. But so Lul adopted Marx's understanding of, of the evolution of society, and in this understanding, various forces are held in a state of tension at any given moment in society, where there are various tensions that are kind of working their way through. And so if you want to, uh, for example, forecast how society is going to change and how it'll evolve, you've got to understand these forces and be able to pick out which one is the strongest uh, at a given moment, which is the determining factor. So for a lull, um, he thought that Marx was right for his time when he named capital or, or economics as the, the driving force in social evolution and then uh, devoted his analysis to capital. However, for the 20th century, when Alul is alive, he thinks that times have now changed, and, uh, and Marx's work of an, the, the same method that Marx applied must be applied again to create a new analysis for, for today, um, or the today of the 20th century. And um, so that's what Alul set out to do, along with his, his best friend, uh, Bernard Charbonneau. And, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, we might say that for a little, technique is the answer to the question, what drives societal change in the 20th century West? Um, and so as that helps situate what technique is, but what does a little mean by it? Well, it's, it's both simple and not simple. Um, in the 1964 English translation of uh, the technological society, he offers this one line definition. Uh, technique is the totality of methods rationally arrived at and having absolute efficiency for a given stage of development in every field of human activity. It's a, a mouthful. So if you need to <laughs> pause this recording and go back and listen to it again, I understand. Um, it's in a way, it's a quest for the one best way to do things. Mm -hmm. um, he notes that, you know, many times we think of technique in connection with machines and this is not unimportant, but it's not everything. Uh, for him, the machine is pure technique. But the thing is, notice that in his definition, he writes, in every field of human activity. Mm 
So you might say that technique is the logic of the machine applied to all of life. Um, so much of his classic book focuses on technique in politics, in economics, and then in daily human life. Um, I think it's also worth noting that this definition includes its own evolution over time, which is why he writes for a given stage of development. So technique implies and, and necessitates a permanent evolution and a permanent kind of self-augmentation. Could we, could we possibly say that technique is also to do with the, the relationship then, the relationship that, that humans have to technology or, or is technique entirely within the, you know, the, the object of which we are coming into communication with? No, you're totally right. It's, um, it, it's a very human thing and it has to do with precisely the relationship between humanity and their, their tools, their techniques and their technologies. Um, no, I think that's, that's very correct to say, um, in a way it's, it's, we sometimes describe it as a kind of objective science or an objective process, but that's the irony is we, we misrecognize the way that we're involved in that objectivity. Okay. I'm now sort of wondering whether or not, because this is much like Heidegger's famous question concerning technology. I was just wondering if a little ever commented on that at all that's right so um so a little was a so um it's, it's interesting a little was aware of heidegger but uh for most of his career he he purposely rejected um using him or or drawing on his stuff um because he was aware from the beginning of heidegger's uh, affiliation with the nazi party um however um so heidegger's essay on technology if i'm not mistaken i think it comes out in 1954 um, Elul's, um, which is the same year actually that um, the Technological Society is published in French, mm -hmm. uh, but Elul's was uh, the Technological Society was written, it was completed at least around 1948, so several years earlier. Um, but yes, all that to say, yes, I think the, the two are related. Um, Elul thinks that in a way, this, this objectivity that we um, uh, that we ascribed to the technological process or operation um, is a mistake, is a, a sort of capitulation or, or at least misrecognition of our own freedom, of our own role in creating it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it, the, I guess the problem then is that, that it, this, whatever the relationship we, we have towards technology is or towards technique is, it does tend to bolster its own approval i'm not really sure how it does it but it kind of came across in what i in my research that mm -hmm. it does it does do this you know there is a collective acceptance of our i guess subjective acceptance of technique right so yeah you know in what in what sense does basically i guess in in simple language in what sense does technology sort of consistently prove to us whether or not that it, it is true or not consistently prove that you know it is the the best thing for us to always be using. Sure. So um, in a way, it's simply because it works. Um, like a good machine either it produces or it doesn't. And, uh, and if it does, its results are obvious and, and uh, again, factual is, is a good word here. Um, if this machine works and that machine doesn't, well, it seems as obvious as two plus two equals four. Or uh, if this machine works better than that machine, that's as obvious as uh, as ten is bigger than nine, you know. Um, mm. 
and so in our society, uh, you might say that our, our post-enlightenment heritage has, has taught us to place a, a kind of ethical value, a good on, on facts and objectivity. And so in a way, technique, um, you know, you might say it falls in line with one of our most, uh, our central collective values. Um, I, uh, before we move on, I, I wanted to mention again in connection with Heidegger. Um, yes, so I know at least Carl Mitchin has compared a little to Heidegger and, uh, and grouped them within kind of the humanities critiques of technology. Mm -hmm. um, and Alul is often, um, often seen as pessimistic in, in his report, in his um, uh, relationship to technique or technology. And likewise, Heidegger's, uh, he, you know, in, in his um, essay on the question concerning technology, he talks about um, the danger that technology poses, um, which in framing constitutes for, for humanity. Um, so in a way, they they both, while they have di very different approaches, Alul is much more of a, a historian and a sociologist than a philosopher in the way that Heidegger was. Um, they both recognize that without a certain human freedom pushing back on it, it does pose a, a problem for, for the way we perceive and understand the world around us. It's interesting what you say there, though, that it, you know, it works. Technology is sort of... Mm. Uh, bolstered because it, it works which actually sort of draws us back to Virilio's famous quote you know you invent the ship you invent the the, the ship right? yeah. yeah and I think this is one of the things that I guess is overlooked that I you know mm. um, that I've touched on with quite a few people on the podcast before is that people love technology because it solves it solves problems and as you say it's sort of productive it's efficient but you know the irony is that it's only efficient and it only solves problem problems which were made by its own sort of arrival. Mm, so it sort mm. of comes along and develops this problem. So sort of like cars, you know, for instance, cars become a universal thing. There's the problem of car crashes. And then we invent more technology and we, we sort of bow down to technique even more and then believe we've solved something. But really there is always, there's never, the question is never addressed of, well, how about we, we go back and see what actually caused the problem and see whether or not we actually need cars as much as we do, for instance. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, does, does, I mean, perhaps the underlying question there is, do, does Dalul ever see, uh, does Alul ever see, um, like a deceleration or, a, or a technological mm. regression as, as a possible positive? Or is he sort of like, this is what we've got. Let's just assess this. Mm. So, uh, so that's a good, good question. Um, it's interesting because today he and us, especially Charbonneau in France, they are, uh, they're becoming, they're receiving a lot of attention from uh, what's called the degrowth movement or decroissance in French. Mm -hmm. And um, which, which is exactly about this, is about uh, descaling technologically and, and in some ways politically as well. Um, so as to whether Lil thinks descaling, like, like you know, shrinking of, of things is, is possible, he certainly hopes so. And I think he does believe it is which is what he calls to, but he recognizes that um, in a way, what he's saying is, hey, you abandon your power. Um, he's, he's literally calling. So um, it, later on, he talks about an ethics of non-power and he distinguishes non-power from um, powerlessness or, or power. So for example, powerlessness as you can't do something, you don't have the power to do it. Um, there's the power to do something, which means you can do it. Or there's non-power for him, which um, simply means you have the power to do it and you refuse. Mm 
and uh, it's that third one for him, which is the the uh, realm in which freedom can act, and that's also what he thinks is necessary in this time. Um, so at the very least, he's he's calling humanity to actively choose limits and to not um, simply do everything that that we can do. Um, but that's the the unpopular and uh, and difficult, if you will. Um, element, especially in a system which is driven on this sort of competition in which I better do it quickly or someone else will, you know? Yeah, I mean, yeah, the sort of um, artificially created scarcity and the, the pressure to consume. I mm -hmm. mean, this is sort of where, I guess, you know, that third ethical stance you put in, you have the power to do it, but, but um, you know, you refuse or you just say, no, I don't want to do it, is, is where the real freedom comes in. But of course, this is of course, then where propaganda comes in the idea that you do have to partake in these things for whatever reasons mm. and you know this is the is this what you what a lot would sort of call a style of life is then built from this you have this power to i don't know consume various things or partake in technique and certain communication channels are sort of have you believed that you need to partake in these things uh yes certainly so like um for example, uh, recently I, I was looking on, um, as part of preparing a class on, on some of these issues, um, I was looking at a neuromarketing website and um, the neuromarketing website, you know, it, it's talk, they're trying to uh, sell their services to advertisers saying we can help you more effectively create demand in consumers because we we know how their brains work, basically. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and it's, it's not as, uh, as black and white as that, certainly. Um, no one is claiming that they, they climb inside your brain and pull the levers and knobs that control you. Um, but they actively are saying that um, because we can research brains the way we do, we know how consumers react in a way better than they do, um, better than they, they know themselves. And uh, in that way, yeah, there's, there's, there is a certain... Um, tailoring of communication to um to the end of propaganda which is to say uh you know it, it, it's communication that's um designed not to to address one but to obtain an effect um but yeah we can we can come back to propaganda in a minute or two if you'd like but um yeah or, or should i just jump into it with um, propaganda yeah you can jump into propaganda yeah sure okay um okay let me see notes on it here um so yeah propaganda i mean basically what's interesting on it uh, the relationship between alul and propaganda is that it comes about because of his own awareness of his reactions in certain situations so in the 30s i think 1935 he's invited to uh, germany by some protestant associations and uh, out of curiosity he, he attends a nazi rally and um he finds this situation impressive um he at the end of his life in, in that interview i mentioned earlier he's asked well so you were there did you uh did you raise your hand and salute um with everyone else and he said no i didn't but it was difficult not to um and the the stares and looks that we got from the people around us were just very frightening um so he goes away from the situation saying wow look what Look at the power that just being placed in that spot in that that weird context exerted on me 
Um, and so he, th this is part of what leads him to uh, set out and study the, the phenomenon of propaganda. And I think it's, it's important to be careful because when we hear propaganda or today, we, we tend to think, um, you know, we tend to think of the Nazis or the communists saying um, in a kind of black and white way, this is what's right or this is not. Or we tend to think that propaganda means lies. Um, or again, we tend to think that propaganda means that I'm, I'm like a marionette puppeteer playing with the, pulling the strings and, and making people think something. When it's for a little, it's much broader than that. It's much more subtle than that. And, um, and it's much more accurate than that. Um, so he notes that Goebbels, uh, Hitler's propaganda minister, always insisted that propaganda, that, that the facts used in propaganda be as accurate as possible. Um, and that when possible, they should use truths and, and report only facts and not make things up. Uh, occasionally they did when they knew they could get away with it. But um, for the most part, they would focus more on manipulating a true fact by placing it in a perhaps falsified context. Um, but anyway, all that to say for a little uh, propaganda is something much bigger. It includes, um, yes, certainly it includes uh, communist propaganda or Nazi propaganda. But he also notes democratic propaganda. He has long sections on American propaganda, um, on public relations as a kind of propaganda, on advertising and, and publicity. Um, yeah, so all that to say, it's a much, uh, a much larger thing. And in terms of your question about um, style of life, the trouble with, with that is that in simple terms, propaganda tells you you are right. And sometimes it adds that other people are wrong. <laughs> or... Um, Perhaps it might, it might elevate a relative value into something absolute, or it might assign a positive or negative moral value to something without such value, or it might strengthen or weaken values which are already there. Um, and this isn't always a conscious process either. Um, I'll give you an example. Um, there was this 2015 film, Concussion, which centers on the Nigerian-American doctor, Bennett Omalu, and his research on brain damage in American football players. And uh, in this film, there's a certain sentimentality attached to the fact that Omalu becomes an American citizen, that he exemplifies American values. Now, this is only comprehensible or it only makes sense kind of from within a perspective in which being American already bears a kind of positive moral value. And this was obvious to me, an American, in part because I watched the film with Canadian friends living in the United Kingdom. Um, this film reinforces the strong role that American football plays in, in life in the U.S. It promotes U.S. nationalism, probably unconsciously. The point is, I don't need to imagine that the film director was kind of scheming to control the minds of the masses. And yet, here this film goes and, and reinforces an American way of life. Um, so in that way, it could be seen as, it could fall under what a little categorizes as sociological propaganda. Okay. Okay. Do you think? Do you think then that our um, relationship with with propaganda, even though it seems that we're doing things from, you know, we 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 see or we hear or we believe these certain things which are told to us, these these supposed truths, or whether or not they're true, it simply matter. It's the way they're communicated to us. Do you think, even though we believe we're acting on them, that really this leads us towards a a state of sort of neutrality, of you know, passivity, where we're actually not thinking? Oh, that's a good question. Um, the trouble is, it, the best propaganda doesn't. So, so um, 
So another quote from uh, Goebbels, if I didn't say it already, Goebbels said, we do not talk to say something, but to obtain a certain effect. So it's important to remember that propaganda generally isn't trying to convince you um, consciously. It's not going to make a, a rational argument that appeals to you and say uh, this or that. It'll appeal to things more like, like fears or insecurities. Um, or, like I said, it will give you a true fact, but just place it in a slightly falsified context. Or the goal will be to simply to get you to react a certain way. So, um, so again, you know, right now in the U.S., everybody's talking about uh, January 6th and the, the riots on Capitol Hill. Um, it's a tough thing because on the one hand, uh, I think that, that uh, when he was president, Trump was a... a kind of expert at um, using his Twitter account to, uh, without, you know, going over the line and saying things explicitly, he was kind of using it to either um, assuage certain opinions or incite. And in that case, you could call that a kind of agitation propaganda, what, what went on there. And certainly that's how the Democrats want it to be interpreted. Um, the downside or the, the flip side to that from the Democratic side is that um, in their interpretations, which they they say this is obvious that it's interpreted this way, um, that it has to be interpreted this way. Um, the the opposite side is going to see what they say and say, oh well, clearly that's propaganda from the democratic side. Um, so in a sense, it, you enter this uh, this this absence of communication in which um, what we say only kind of reinforces ourselves. Um, sorry, I think I got off track. <laughs> Can you bring me back to uh, what the question was? Whether or not propaganda leads, uh, you know, sort of renders you passive. Right, right. So again, um, if it's meant to render you passive, it's not, um, I would say it's more that it, it blocks you from interpreting things in a different way. Um, but the trouble, part of the trouble that a little highlights with propaganda is that in, in today's society, we need it. Um, sometimes actively and, and sometimes we desire it. So um, one of the difficulties with, uh, with politics today is that everyone kind of feels the need to have an opinion on everything. Um, but a little note to the trouble is that um, if you're working a full day and you go home and you have a full day with the family and everything, you don't have time to, to sit down and actively uh, analyze everything that happens. So in a way you kind of need, um, you need reactions, you need a, an opinion on something kind of prefabricated for you. And so that's the role that um, the news plays. It gives us a way to think about things, which saves us the work of, of developing a nuanced opinion. And that way we can still talk about it and save face when somebody mentions it and they, they look at us and they say, what, you haven't heard about that? You don't know. Yeah. And uh, so a way, in a way it kind of fulfills a, a, um, a need to feel informed, a need to feel like we are, um, actively analyzing these things when when simply we don't have the time so for for a little was it important to try break out of this propaganda sort of machine or was it more important to sort of just recognize it and say actually i don't even really need to listen to the news at all like that's a that's a choice just as well you know if the news is giving you the the blue and the red uh options of opinion you know of course if you understand it's propaganda you might form a third a third option and say well actually i believe nothing of those two i'll create my own opinion but equally there is the choice of saying i'm going to turn off the tv so 
was is one of these more important to a lot? Is it more important to simply realize propaganda and step away, or is it more important to sort of form your own form your own opinion, or is it a bit of both? Uh, so I would say it's definitely more of a for, for a little like um, I guess stepping away would be useful if um, if you knew that everything you were hearing was purely propaganda and it was lies, um, or it would be worth listening to but extremely critically. Um, but for him, the point was never to to step away or kind of get out of things, but to uh, to actively fight through it and search for for a truth beyond it or or um, you know, in, in really digging through it. Um, so, for example, when he talks about uh, in, in his books on either propaganda or technological society, um, when he starts, he, he starts by, um, he doesn't want to say, okay, here's my definition of technology or technique or propaganda. He starts by sifting through, okay, I've read these other books and this person says this, and here's the problems I find with his definition. And this other guy says this, and he's right about this, but you know his definition lacks this. And so it's a very considered and nuanced. I've read like fifty different sources, and I've sifted through them, and I've thought. And so here's what I'm coming to. Um, to get there, a little has to be just you know like that's what I'm, I'm talking about when he talks about um, the time to really analyze a thing in depth and, and with nuance. Um, to have you know that kind of a an opinion on any political issue. So, for example, the, the um, you know, I don't know, the, on Brexit or, uh, or Donald Trump's impeachment trials, like you would have to sit down and, and really analyze a lot of stuff to, to have a, a truly intellectual opinion on a, a well-reasoned and argued um, stance. But, um, yeah, nobody's going to sit down and read 50 books to figure out what they really think about that they want to talk about it today with their friends the, at work or you know in the bar and, and that's kind of it you know um yeah so i would say for him though that it's it's definitely a question more of um propaganda it, it's worth analyzing because it should you can learn something about both yourself and the, the propagandist if you will what they're after um but it's worth knowing that what you hear in it is not going to be a full story. Okay, okay. For a law, was it ever possible to sort of get back to a, a life of sort of complete truth, or is that always going to be a uh, an uphill struggle? Hmm. So it it doesn't. I mean, it doesn't have to be. Um, <laughs> but I would say that the the alternative to propaganda might simply be called dialogue, or at least on the, the level of the spoken word. Um, it means that you abandon the intention of, of manipulating or controlling with your words or with your communications, and you actually open yourself to a, a back and forth relationship with another speaker. Now, that doesn't guarantee that you will attain the truth, but uh, for a little, it is how you get closer to it. So he later wrote a book called The Humiliation of the Word, uh, in which he goes into detail about truth, and he makes a distinction between truth and reality. Um, and we can dig into that more if you'd like, but um, it is a good question because in in the way he describes us in uh, the 20th and, and now 21st century um, in our societies, we basically do get so used to living among propagandistic messages that, that real dialogue is more like a rarity. Um, yeah. 
So yeah, if if I could sort of pry there, what is the difference there between truth and reality? Sure. So for a little um, <clears throat> in that so in humiliation of the word, he he makes what he admits is an oversimplified distinction between truth and reality, and he says, for my purposes in this book, I'm going to connect truth to the word and to the spoken word specifically, and so to hearing. And then he connects reality to visual images, which are so connected to seeing. Um, and in that book, one of the one of the things he's really on about is how language works or what language gives us and what's the relationship between our lives and, and our spoken word. And um, so when he talks about truth, he doesn't mean that all words are true or all words, um, you know, can give us access to truth. But he means that truth is an exclusively linguistic phenomenon. So if you do want to talk, like once you see images, once you look at things, uh, it's ambiguous and it calls for a kind of interpretation. But um, if you, but yeah, so, so words are the thing that brings truth into play for a little. Okay. Okay. Moving, such moving sort of forward then, I guess, into, into that form of truth and how Elul is assessing the world this was something that was interesting to me and probably is I imagine as as a as a as a Elul scholar these or any type of scholar when you get into political readings and people's political mm-hmm. affiliations it's always the the point I guess where there's going to be disagreements but what is um what is Elul's relationship with Marx because he uses a lot of the language and yet mm-hmm. you know later on I have the question that of whether or not Elul believes in progress which you know yeah, and teleology as well, which is two sort of things where he could veer off from Marx. So, you know, initially, what is his relationship with Marx and Marxism? Well, the short answer is it's complicated. <laughs> um, when he was young, uh, Elul read everything that Marx had ever written, and uh, that was kind of a, a revolutionary moment for Elul. So, Marx gave him a, a synthetic picture, a way to understand the world around him. And um, he, he specifically mentions that for him at that time when he was young, he felt, ah, all of a sudden I understand why my father is unemployed and, and um, you know, the things around him in, in Bordeaux. And so, um, yeah, it was kind of an aha moment that, that Marx gave him. So Elul's, his own sociology borrows much from Marx's method and he keeps it for his entire life. Um, he later says that he found no other method which would allow him to analyze society and and specifically make such accurate predictions for how things would evolve. Um, but for most of the 20th century in France, it's worth noting that Marxism was seen as a very progressive and, and morally positive idea. So most intellectuals at least go through a Marxist phase, like, uh, like Jean-Paul Sartre, and uh, their approaches to Marxism are sometimes very dogmatic. So uh, Marxism becomes a moral truth in France in a way that it simply doesn't in some other countries. Um, Alul never really fell into that. So he never joined the French Communist Party. Um, he, he never became dogmatic about, um, you know, Marx's ideas about revolution or whatever. You might say that he held more to Marx's method than to his conclusions. Um, it's also worth noting here that this method was in tension with Lowell's theology. So um, Marx said that atheism was the entryway into his thought. 
So while it will recognize that it's impossible to be both a Christian and then truly Marxist, he, um, he nevertheless, nevertheless owed a debt to Marx, which it's hard to really separate from the rest of his work. Uh, as an example, once in a TV interview, they said they called him a Marxologist. And Olul responded, well, Marxologist, yes, but more than that. Um, and he, you know, he has that complicated thing where he doesn't want to say, yes, I'm a Marxist, because he knows what that implies. Um, but at the same time, he recognizes this has played a, a heavy personal and theoretical role for me. And he does. He does tend to sort of use Marxist language in his thought, though. Um, specifically, mm-hmm. you know, I noticed alienation. Um, yeah. And in you know, does this tie in with his sort of notion of propaganda? And do do you think that, um, in terms of someone finding like an authentic reality for themselves, that when you're in a position of alienation, really, you know, what is it for a law that you're within when you are alienated in this sense? Sure. So I would say certainly um, Marxist thinking ties into a little notion of propaganda. Um, Marx spoke about uh, truth, like, you know, consciousness and false consciousness. And uh, in a way, that could be what propaganda is. It's, it maintains a sort of dream state. Um, but the thing is, it's, it's more complicated than it's not like a, a machine that acts on us and maintains that state. Again, the trouble is that we're sort of involved in it. From the beginning, we kind of desire that. Um, so yes, I would say that Marx's uh, yes alienation does does translate into a lot of Alul's work. Um, as for whether or not we could say something about them being their true self, I think that's where, uh, in a way, that allows us to see the limits of of how we could call a little a philosopher. Um, the question of one's true self seems nearly metaphysical and. I would say that a little, a little thinking never really goes in that direction. Um, in fact, one time he says something like, uh, he says something like, I have succeeded in question only in questions that have interested me. Now, finding my true self that has never, or finding myself who I was, has never been interesting for me. Hmm. Um, so, uh, but it's worth, I, th- I think another important thing to mention here is that um, one of Alul's biggest criticisms of Marx has to do with how Marx treats the human. Um, Alul calls the human one of the biggest problems in Marxism. He thinks that um, without realizing it, Marx basically borrows a bourgeois conception of human freedom, which was popular in his time, even though it doesn't and shouldn't fit into the rest of his thought. Um, But he also recognizes that Marx changes over time on the question of the human. So um, you could say that Maybe the closest Alul gets to a, a set anthropology, a set thinking about humanity, is this idea of freedom. But it's tricky, um, and it's uh, even per- perhaps though it's less dog- it's less than dogmatic in Alul's thought. He doesn't say freedom is the human or something. Um, it's still a, a pretty tricky and, and evolving question. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So how does Alul sort of work out a position where? You know, we, we we briefly touched on it earlier with the propaganda in that everything is sort of politicized. And, you know, especially these days, literally everything can be a political decision, which in itself is sort of um, a form of propaganda, at least, you know, I guess I guess it's wrong to always see propaganda in that negative context. Really, it's just understanding that things are trying to, uh, you know, alter your how you view the world in some way, whether or not that's good or bad, is, I guess, is, is the question itself. But, you know. 
this increased sort of politicization of everyday life mm. in, in in relation to this concept of alienation does Alul see it as I mean you know I tried to move away from binary good and bad but does Alul see it as a positive to sort of mm-hmm. view your life from that political angle where you sort of understand yourself to be x or y in a political sense or is that you know once again moving you know into the realms of that which he is critiquing right that's a good question i think uh it's he would be more negative on that um so for example i would say that if we think about like the origins of the secular state in the west um in many cases, it originated as a way to get out of or to put an end to religious wars, religious disputes. Um, one aim of severing the church from the state was to ensure a kind of minimum of freedom from coercion or uh, freedom to discuss and to debate. But um, today, the role of that of the state of, of politics in daily life is much different and much larger. Um, so the size of this supposedly neutral area of life has immensely expanded. And I don't just mean uh, in terms of bureaucracy. Now, certainly this is different in various countries. Um, so the church, the separation of church and state in the U.S. is a, a very different thing from French laïcité. Um, but in both cases, um, everything from greeting someone in the street to choices of where to shop or what to buy, all of these things can be seen as political statements. Um, the adoption of, of one of a set number of positions on a, on a certain spectrum. Um, but the trouble with that is that politics is, is thus no longer just a question of maintaining a negative bare minimum of freedom for discussion. It comes to be something that, that encompasses all of our speech, our life, and our choices. And so um, Alul, and even more so his, his uh, friend Charbonneau, really spent their lives protesting that, that kind of absorption of all of human life into politics. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah, I hope that's a a good start. Yeah, I mean, I guess that that actually does sort of, in a strange way, move me into into the next question, which is to do with progress, which is sort of, I guess the political sphere is all about that notion of, you know, acting and being an activist in the sense that you're working towards something which is progressive, which will progress us in some way um, towards, I guess, one's definition of what it is to progress. But, you know, in, in the episode that I did with uh, Christian Roa on Charbonneau, yeah. um, it's clear to me that Charbonneau was, as you say, um, he just sort of went into the country, right, and just taught people uh, mm-hmm. these sort of uh, sustainable ways of living and getting back to nature, etc., which wouldn't really be included in, in this, this notion of progress. That would just be sort of not to sound too cheap but you know living living in the moment and actually having a actually doing the marxist thing of what what's the famous quote the job of a philosopher is not to think about the world it's to to change the world is that it i can't remember but yeah, you know yeah, i think so. it seems that charbonneau was doing that on a very small simple scale which he saw perhaps not as progress but as you know almost a move away from progress to say right let's stop let's sort of go back and just almost go back to basics so you know is, is there a because the definition the contemporary definition of progress for me is a very difficult one do you, do you think there is mm-hmm. such a thing as progress for a lull um so because, the, because the, i guess yeah, i guess my on. point from the previous question is that progress now is inherently tied to that politicization of of everything yeah yeah so um the short answer is no uh <laughs> 
the way the way that we use uh, the word progress or progressive, um, a little would almost wholeheartedly reject it. Um, so certainly there's things like technological progress. Um, there are increases in certain types of knowledge, scientific progress, et cetera, that's, that's uh, undeniable and a little never certainly denies those things. Um, but um, what progressions in this kind of knowledge mean for, for the life of humans is a much more interesting, but less black and white question. Um, in a moral sense, we can only call things, certain things progressive, I would say, by uh, ignoring a lot of the details which make them what they are. Um, I'll give you one example from Alul's life. Um, so since the 1960s, and especially in, in, in a special way in France, um, in much of the West, um, the fact that increasing numbers of women seek full-time work outside of the home is often counted as a sign of progress in a moral sense, uh, usually within the, the framework of some civil rights, you know? Um, and this is often accompanied by a, a sort of general disparaging of the idea that being a, a simple housewife is a, either an antiquated or an enslaving position. And um, in this discourse, liberation from this position might imply that, that women find their true dignity and work outside the home, or that they really achieve their, their personal development in a career, etc. Now, Elul was completely against this position, though it would be a ridiculous error to think that he or his wife were thereby somehow politically conservative on this issue. Um, so when Elul meets his wife, Yvette, um, she had abandoned her Catholic origins and she was interested by Nietzsche's critiques of Christianity. They met at a right-wing protest where they were both working against the protesters. Um, and in a 1966 book of Marxist-inspired critique of language, Olul devotes a chapter to critiquing the idea that women find their freedom and their dignity in work. Now, Olul's wife, who read everything he wrote before it was published, would never have let something like that slip without having thought it through. Um, so all that to say that categorizing his position as either progressive or conservative or reactionary would really be to miss a great opportunity at, at good conversation on these important topics. Um, so I would say that that's, that's one way that um, what passes for politics today stuffs the complexity of life into kind of oversimplified categories. It, it only works by reducing or ignoring a lot of this complexity so that it can be, um, you know, safely managed from a distance, I, I guess. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Do you, is, is there any, is a little careful to sort of give advice to people? Because it seems that a lot of philosophy at times does um, sort of tiptoe close to, you know, are we getting close to like, this is how we should comport ourselves. This is what we should do. Is he careful to give any practical advice of how one can, exist within this world which he's laid out on a even you know even on a physical because obviously Charbonneau is doing this sort of yeah almost a French back to the land movement does Alul do anything like this or is he just giving a theoretical framework which then people can use you know yeah. subjectively so you know it's, it's a good question and it's interesting that you mentioned Charbonneau with that too because in a way uh Alul and Charbonneau they're they're different but they're like complementary so um, Elul always wrote that um, he wrote about technique because he struggled with it himself. Um, from the time he was a teenager, he worked his mind and his body like a, like a machine. He said that he even once employed uh, Taylor's scientific, his system of scientific management 
on himself to to handle everything that he had to do. Um, he worked like a robot. He often worked ten hours a day for for years on end. Um, and he, you know, he certainly made a concentrated effort to become aware of the ways that he was um, he was obeying these technical or uh, you know, the imperatives of technique. And um, you could say that by integrating himself in a large state university for his whole career, he certainly didn't distance himself from the rest of society. Um, but yeah, Charbonneau was very different. Charbonneau purposely chose a career as a teacher in a high school, far from big cities and closer to nature. Um, for Charbonneau, this, um, the, the sentiment of nature, um, as he says in an early writing, was a, a revolutionary force. And um, so for Charbonneau, living close to and, and really experiencing and living with nature, not just having nature as an idea, um, but, but knowing what it is because you, you live in it and, and, and with it and love it um, was, was crucial. Now, that's it. I don't think the, the, pro the thing is, which one do you choose, a little Charbonneau? I honestly think you, you probably need both. Um, and that might be a good starting point to, to have a, a physical dialogue between the city uh, between a concentrated experience of human civilization and uh, nature or, or creation, between the world that humanity has built and, and this other world that, um, that finds itself within the natural world. Um, but especially in today's world, that's, that kind of a, a lived dialogue can be quite difficult, um, especially for a city dweller, because uh, as, as mentioned, for us, the word nature can just be the subject of such cheap romanticism. But Anyway, that's a starting point, I suppose. Hmm. Okay. Okay. So, was do you think there's different? Is it is there any ends for either of those things? I guess I mean especially specifically a lot, but is there a a place that we're going, or is this just another episode in history? This to take this episode of technique, which will you know mutate into something else. Hmm. That's a good question. Um. I think, I think in a way, no, in the sense that um, Alul doesn't really give a, a teleology of, um, yeah, so if, if he's trying to describe how this machine of society is developing, mm -hmm. um, he doesn't say, here's how it should develop. Um, I guess the closest you get really is kind of human freedom as a, as a benchmark. So what he really wants to see is, um, in, in response to technique, he wants to see humanity assert its own freedom. And he, like, in other words, he thinks that in a way, um, this technical world we've, we've made now creates the imperatives that define how it relates to us. And so in a way we've lost, if we had an upper hand, it's not, not, not that it's a struggle between machines or whatever, between humans and machines, but in a way we, um, we've lost the sense for it. So, uh, for him, the ends that we set out to achieve by creating all these technological things have been lost in the proliferation of the means that we we make to achieve them. Um, so he would like humanity to rediscover some of their own ends, but he doesn't want to say, and so here's what those ends should be as much. Um, it's also tricky because this uh, this question opens the door into his uh, theological writings, but... Um, we'll try to keep that door closed for now, or at least mostly shut. Yeah. I mean, that's why one of the questions that I had right at the beginning, I'll probably put in nearer the end here. So it sort of ties us to the next 
episode, which I hope you're still <laughs> up for doing yeah. after this. Sure. Um, which is, you know, which is that does the the key overlap? I think is that does tech, you know, the technological society become the the sort of the new religious foundation for 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 the majority of people. You know, is that our in the, I guess I guess you could sort of, sort of say specifically in the West, um, is mm-hmm. it our our new religion? So that's a good a good question. It's uh, I think it might it might not be wrong to say that technique does kind of become a new religion, but I think it would be at least sticking to the terms a little uses. It would be more precise to say that technique becomes our new sacred. Mm-hmm. Um, so he has a book called The New Demons, where he explains what he means by this and. Uh, and the sacred might be said to be an environment which orients everything else. It, it is what defines the perspective from which somebody sees the world. Um, so, for example, he writes that religion is one possible rendition of the sacred. You might say that the category of religion is the way that a certain search for uh, a kind of transcendence from the technical world appears, but from within a world that's already defined by technique itself. So on an ethical level, the sacred is what orients human action, and uh, it is associated with both hopes and fears. And now Alul schematically suggests three major sacreds throughout Western history. First, nature. Um, in other words, you you know the primitive person needs to uh, live by nature to survive, and so nature offers both hopes for survival but also the threat to survival in the sense that nature is where his, you know, the animal that might kill them is, is coming from. Um, after this, the nature is desacralized, if you will, by um, Christianity, um, especially the church under Christendom becomes a certain sacred in the sense that the church bears the, the keys to eternal salvation. And so if you don't go through the church, then you're, um, you know, cut off from it. But um, so the church is both your hope for and what, what prevents you from the idea of eternal salvation. Um, and so now Alul thinks the third sacred is, is technique, which profanes the church and profanes um, Christianity as, as a Western sacred. Um, so technique now becomes an environment. And um, in this, you, know, you might think of this with the, the response to um, the COVID crisis, especially in France. Um, it feels like, uh, and sometimes it explicitly is, the, the government officials saying, look, whatever for all the rest, but we have to keep the economy running. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, why? Why do we have to keep the economy running? What's going to happen if we don't? Uh, oh, well, unemployment and, you know, and then the whole list starts of all the, the horrible things that will happen if we don't keep the economy running. Now, I'm not trying to minimize the real consequences of that. All I'm trying to say is that in that sense, by orienting our decisions in such a, a clear way, the economy um, or the technique that, you know, underlies economic thinking um, has become a, a sort of new sacred. So, um, so yeah, in, in a way, technique that the logic of, of absolute efficiency um, does it represent um, a sacred with its own rituals and myths and, and um, yeah, it, it, it is, in the world's view, and I think that it still applies uh, to a lot of today, that which orients our, our ethical decision making. Hmm. Okay. Um, this 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 episode will probably be just after an episode on Rene Girard, and I know it's a couple of overlaps there with if mm-hmm. um, the sacred and, oh, and also the you know the Catholicism. 
Does does Alola have a comment on Gerard's work at all? A bit. So um, actually, it's interesting. There's a guy here in Strasbourg who's um, just starting a PhD on on Elul and Girard. Um, so you know, in the future, we'll have a much better answer to that. <laughs> but um, there's only, to my knowledge, there's only one major writing where Elul addresses Girard, and it's um, in French. It's called Theology and Technique, and it's a a, a, paper, uh, a, a book published posthumously, so after Elul's death, and um, it's, uh, he has a few essays, like basically he talks about Girard and Dostoevsky and this connection of the, in Dostoevsky's underground man, the underground spirit. Um, and uh, I, I think Girard has written some things about that as well. So that's the only place he really talks about it, but I can't say much about how he, I think he appreciated him um, and entered into appreciative dialogue and occasional disagreement with, with what he read from Girard but it's relatively minor in, in the uh, list of authors with whom a little is in dialogue. Okay. Okay. Is there um, anything you, you would like to add that you feel we've, uh, we've missed? Uh, only that I talked too much. <laughs> I wish I hadn't, but um, then we could have gotten to more questions, <laughs> but no, no, I have nothing to add. Um, I think that looking forward to the next uh, installment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, whereabouts can we find this, uh, the, the, the companion to his major works. Oh, right. So the, the book that I have published with uh, Jacob Van Fleet. Yeah. Um, so you can order it through withandstock.com, uh, W-I-P-F-A-N-D-S-T-O-C-K.com. Um, I mean, it's on Amazon and stuff too, but um, I think it's, yeah, Withandstock usually has some, some discount on there if you order it from them. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh yeah, Jake Rollison, uh, thanks very much. Thanks very much, James. It's been a pleasure.